as we're moving deeper into the retreat, some of you may have noticed that difficult emotions have been coming up at times, which is a very common thing to happen when we are on retreat. Not always, as each retreat is different, but not at all unusual. Being on retreat actually means that we minimize our distractions and so we start to listen inwardly more and really get in touch with the inner world of our hearts and our minds. And in this silent space of a retreat, we can really become aware of so many emotions and feelings that we usually don't really acknowledge that may be challenging. Perhaps grief has been coming up for you that hasn't been given space and time during your everyday life. Perhaps you have noticed that there are memories, old patterns of self-judgment, loneliness, deep pain that we thought we had worked through already a million times. So we experience challenges, difficult emotions. And as we've seen, we often react to unpleasantness with aversion. So maybe we think these emotions shouldn't be here. We try to ignore them. We try harder to concentrate our mind. Maybe we simply fall asleep or we seek someone to blame, very often ourselves, uh, for being so emotional and messed up. And on top of this, we shoot another arrow at ourselves by taking it all personal and feeling ashamed about feeling difficult emotions. And this feeling that somehow these emotional or bodily, physical difficulties shouldn't be here um, and that this means something about me, that they prove that there is something fundamentally wrong with me. And so we can go on and on like that. Maybe you have also experienced such phases, just piling up more and more layers of self-hatred and judgment. Now, a considerable part of our practice really has to do with learning to acknowledge suffering when it is there and to learn how to meet it with less reactivity. We have spoken a lot about this. And to meet it with more kindness, with more gentleness. If we train in really acknowledging what is there for us right now, just allowing ourselves to feel what we feel. Just like, yes, this hurts, this is difficult. Then we gradually learn to open to just the truth of this moment, to embrace it and to hold it with tenderness and with care without adding more suffering. And with every moment in which we practice to embrace the pain, the difficult, we actually cultivate compassion, a bigger capacity to acknowledge difficult states with less defensiveness. So tonight I'd like to explore with you this quality of compassion 
that is so essential on our path. In the Buddhist teachings, compassion is seen as one of the foremost wholesome qualities. And on many occasions, the Buddha himself taught the importance of compassion. Actually, compassion was what brought the Buddha to teach in the first place. After his awakening, it was out of compassion that he shared his discovery of this path. He first taught it to his five former companions who had practiced ascetic practices together with him. And then from there on, he continued to teach for 45 years in spite of difficulties and obstacles. Compassion is really one of the most important qualities that we want to cultivate in our practice. And it is at the same time the expression of a liberated heart and mind, manifesting in all the ways we act and speak. When the heart is free from obscurations, defilements, then compassion flows naturally, very easily. It's just a spontaneous response to suffering. So the Dalai Lama says, I feel that a sense of compassion is the most precious thing there is. Now, what do we mean when we say compassion? One way to see compassion is to see it as a complement to wisdom. Both compassion and wisdom address the fundamental truths of suffering, but they do this in different ways. Whereas wisdom offers a way to free the mind by seeing the impersonal nature of our experience and by understanding the universal processes that lead to suffering, compassion addresses us on a personal level. Compassion is about people, about beings who suffer. Compassion speaks to us as a particular person that we are with our personal story and perspective. It has to do with how we relate to the suffering of specific beings and how we as a person empathize with other beings. For instance, not too long ago, the mother of a dear friend of mine died. And of course, I could have said to her, oh, you know, everything is impermanent. That's just how things are. That would have been true, yes, in one way. But it would not have been very relational. It would not have been an adequate response from me as a friend. So compassion has to do with us being human beings, relating to other human beings in the midst of suffering, of pain, of anguish, connecting with each other through a deep resonance. Bhikkhu Bodhi writes, like metta, compassion arises by entering into the subjectivity of others, by sharing their interiority in a deep and total way. It springs up by considering that all beings, like ourselves, wish to be free from suffering, yet despite their wishes, continue to be harassed by pain, fear, sorrow and other forms of dukkha. 
So compassion arises from becoming aware of the suffering in others, from this sensitivity to what others feel and experience. And it involves the wish to bring this suffering to an end. It is concerned about the suffering and it wants to relieve, alleviate the suffering. So it's the opposite of cruelty, the wish that another being may suffer. Thus, compassion includes two aspects, you could say. It includes, but goes beyond empathy, the ability to feel with another person's suffering. Empathy intuitively senses what another person is feeling and in this way shares the experience with another being. It is what is traditionally described as the trembling or quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering or trembling along with another one. In Pali, this quality is called anukampa, this trembling along. So if we look around, we cannot help seeing enormous amounts of suffering. And here it says that with this sensitivity, we allow ourselves to be affected, to be touched by this suffering. And empathy is a beautiful quality that we humans have, and I believe also some animals have it to a certain degree, to be able to resonate and on an emotional, sometimes also cognitive level with another being. We can also see it in small children who are able to pick up the emotions of other people in astonishing ways. However, feeling with another being does not necessarily make us actually respond to the suffering and seek ways to relieve it. Actually, empathy alone must not but can bring up strong feelings of sadness or grief in the face of suffering. And in this way, it might make us aware of the presence of dukkha, but it does not necessarily show us a way out. If we are very sensitive to the suffering around us, but lack the capacity and the means to alleviate it, then this suffering can become overwhelming and lead to what is called empathetic distress, which is a negative mind state, a state of feeling flooded by the suffering. You can see this kind of contagion when two babies are together and one baby starts to cry and shortly afterwards the other baby also starts to cry. Have you seen this? How small babies affect each other. And you know this feeling of grief in the face of suffering is actually a near enemy of compassion they say traditionally. It is this feeling of being totally sad and despondent in the face of suffering. And we should not confuse it with, with true compassion. So in addition to the empathy, compassion also includes a quality of concern that we may alleviate the suffering. So there is a motivation there to actually do something about it. 
In this way, compassion is oriented towards a positive vision, not a negative one. It is actually a positive mind state, which is interesting. Compassion is a way of responding to suffering with a wholesome intention, with this wish that this suffering may end. And this is a totally wholesome thought. It does not just stop by saying, oh, poor you, you are truly in a miserable place. That would really be pity, this sense of looking down on someone who is worse off than we, so we can feel better. So often pity is also said to be a near enemy of compassion. And what makes it different from compassion is that it has this underlying text that this, uh, something like, oh, I'm glad that I'm not the one suffering here. Yeah. This pity tries to keep the suffering at a distance and does not really care about the other one. Compassion, however, grows out of the vision that any situation can be changed and out of the willingness to actually do something about the suffering. Compassion also is a strong, a wise and intelligent quality. It's not stupid. Sometimes people misunderstand compassion as meaning, you know, that they should always be nice to other people and let other people walk uh, over them. But that's really not meant here. It's rather what Pema Chodron calls idiot compassion. True compassion doesn't mean that we allow other people to take advantage of us or that we never set boundaries. If we do this, we are not acting very compassionately towards ourselves. Now, a beautiful figure that embodies or symbolizes compassion is the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara or Chenresik in Tibetan Buddhism. Do you know this figure, some of you? Or um, the female form in China, Kuan Yin or Kannon in Japan. Uh, It's a Bodhisattva of compassion. The name Kuan Yin means the perceiver of the world's sounds. And it is said about Kuan Yin that she hears all the cries of the world and responds with compassion. So compassion is highly sensitive to and concerned about the suffering and the pain of all beings. It perceives the suffering and it receives it with a trembling heart. And compassion also is willing to be close to the suffering. And you know, to be close to suffering, have you noticed, is not easy. Because suffering and pain often do not look or feel or smell nice. It is one thing to practice compassion in such a nice meditation hall like here. And it is a very different thing to actually, for instance, take care of someone who is ill or very old. Have you noticed it? You are faced with, you know, unpleasant views, smells, uh, touches. You are faced with grumpiness, with aggression, all kinds of things. So anyone who has really 
been close to suffering, you know, it's not just nice. We have these romantic ideas, but sometimes it really means we have to move towards something that is rather unpleasant. So in compassion, there is this willingness to move towards the suffering, even if it looks ugly or displeasing. And sometimes, you know, we ourselves are those who find we feel ugly, we, we feel unworthy, we feel ashamed. But compassion doesn't care. In, I mean, it does care, but it doesn't care about how you look, how you feel. It just embraces you. Compassion responds with this impulse to help, to free this being and ultimately to free all sentient beings from suffering. And this is the reason why the figure of Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin are sometimes depicted with 11 heads or with thousand arms that symbolize the tireless activity of compassion in many different forms to reach out to all those beings who suffer. So compassion really is a positive mind state, committed to alleviate suffering, and we should not confuse it with pity that clearly lacks its commitment and resourcefulness. I have, at times when I felt grief or desperation, imagined how would the Buddha, for instance, or how would Kuan Yin respond to my suffering? And when I would do this, I wouldn't see them breaking into tears about my situation. Honestly, I also wouldn't find it very comforting or reassuring if the Buddha would collapse and fall into depression upon seeing my situation, yes? Rather, in my imagination, the Buddha or the Kuan Yin or whoever would just look at me with eyes filled with compassion and with a deep understanding of my pain. And at the same time, they would gently and calmly remind me of a bigger perspective in which this suffering can be understood and hope be held. The knowledge of a deeper dimension of peace, of freedom that can be found in the midst of struggle. So true compassion is able to fully resonate with the painful feelings, with the suffering, yet it doesn't drown in them because it's much, much vaster and much more spacious than the suffering. And so it can hold the suffering. And because it goes together with wisdom, with the wisdom that knows that there is a possibility of ending suffering, the possibility of liberation. This is an important aspect that compassion is founded on wisdom and informed by wisdom. If this wisdom were not there, what would we offer to a person in pain? It would be so easy to fall into hopelessness, resignation or cynicism if we did not have this wise understanding that suffering is not all there is, that there is a greater perspective and vision that is available. I will come back to this relationship between wisdom and compassion later, but 
let's just say that compassion includes a confidence and trust that is founded on a wise understanding. So it is wide and stable enough to be very close to the suffering and to hold it rather than falling into despair, like a, like a good parent, mother or father holding the crying child, embracing it gently. Compassion, as you may know, is also one of the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abodes, besides loving-kindness that we practice in the afternoon, appreciative joy and equanimity. And together, these four Brahma-viharas basically cover all possible ways of relating to sentient beings in skillful ways. I really see those four Brahma-viharas as a concrete manifestation of awakening in our relationship to other beings. In an ideal world, loving-kindness would always be the default mode in which we would approach every other living being. You know, this attitude of kindness, of friendliness, of well-wishing, This attitude of friendliness towards the person next to us, towards the birds, towards the spiders, towards the people driving by in cars, just to anybody. And when this basic attitude um, sees another being that is in pain, that is in suffering, then the friendliness naturally turns into compassion. When it sees joy and happiness and good luck in other beings, it turns into appreciative joy, celebrating the good. And yet all those responses are held and supported by a fundamental equanimity that knows that all those experiences change, that they are not stable or substantial. Equanimity also includes the understanding that our well-wishing and our activities for other beings will not always yield the results we hoped for due to many causes and conditions that are beyond our control. So together, these four Brahma-viharas stand for a heart-mind that is very attuned and responsive to whatever it encounters, the ability to resonate with other beings and with all their experiences, sharing their joys and sharing their sorrows. For instance, when you observe the Dalai Lama, when he meets people, I am often struck by his ability to be so alive and attuned to his uh, uh, students. So he can show deep concern and compassion in one moment and then break into laughter in the next moment. So he's totally responsive, he's totally there. Have you, have you seen that at times? It's very impressive to see the openness of his heart and his, his ability to totally respond. So there is this capacity of the Brahma-viharas to accommodate all human experiences. And this also shows in the fact that they are said to be boundless qualities. 
which is the reason that they, they are also called immeasurable. So, like all those boundless qualities, uh, compassion has the characteristic that it is not limited to certain beings, to certain objects, to certain periods of time, but potentially that it is a mind state that is incredibly vast, a, a boundless space. When we cultivate compassion as a meditation practice, as a Brahma-Vihara in the meditation, we can at times really feel our heart and mind expand. We can feel how everything opens. There is this sense of spaciousness. There is a quality of beauty. There is a quality of happiness in the mind even. So fully developed compassion is vast as the sky. So vast and wide that it can encompass all living beings, no matter how close or far they are to us, and so vast that it can never be exhausted or brought to an end. There is no, no point where compassion would say, okay, that's enough for you, I'm done, you have received enough from me. Compassion just flows and flows and flows. It's just its nature to be sensitive to whatever suffering it becomes aware of and then to care, to heal, to soothe, to offer help and support. Now, why is compassion so important? Maybe you think that's more the question of, not a question at all, huh? As we have said already, we need compassion as we are facing suffering in ourselves and in other beings because it is so powerful in alleviating suffering and it can bring much relief even in an instance. Whenever we are faced with painful, with difficult experiences, compassion is this ability to hold ourselves gently and with care rather than falling into reactivity. Like a kind mother or a father, we can comfort ourselves. we can comfort this small child simply by offering our presence. We can almost like whisper to ourselves, yeah, I know, this is difficult, this hurts. So to me, compassion feels like this, this, movement to bring the pain close to my heart, to simply hold it in my arms, very uncomplicated. And maybe to drop in the question, okay, what do you need? To notice whether there is something that would be helpful right now and then acting accordingly. And as we do this, we can feel the impact this has on our experience. We can feel how compassion almost magically transforms the whole field and softens and relaxes our relationship to what is going on. And this is also true when we ourselves are in huge, huge suffering and yet we are able to also open to another person's suffering. Like, for instance, in this story of Kisa Gotami that I'd like to share with you. 
Kisagotami was a poor farmer's wife at the time of the Buddha who very much longed for a child. When she finally gave birth to a little boy, she was overjoyed. But soon the boy, still a toddler, became seriously ill and died shortly afterwards. Gotami was completely overwhelmed by the pain. Unable to accept what had happened, she took up the body of her child as if he were still alive and started to wander around with him in her arms, desperately begging people, please, please give me medicine for my son. The villagers were a bit surprised at first and soon also began to make fun of her. Finally, an old man had compassion for Gotami and told her that there was a great sage with unsurpassed powers nearby. Why don't you go and see him and ask him, he told her. Full of hope and excitement, Gotami rushed where the Buddha was on her arm, still her dead child. Breathlessly, she fell down before the Buddha and begged him, please, blessed one, give me medicine for my son. The Buddha immediately saw how confused Gotami was, but he also saw her spiritual potential. He said to her, you did well to ask for medicine here, but go back to the village first. Bring me mustard seeds from all the houses where nobody mourns the dead and come back to me with those mustard seeds. Believing that the Buddha was planning to use the mustard seeds to create the magic cure for her son, Gotami returned to the village full of excitement. At the first house, she said, The Buddha told me to collect mustard seeds from all the houses where no one mourns the dead. Please give me mustard seeds for my son. But the father of the family said, Oh, Gotami, unfortunately, we mourn our dear son who died a few months ago. So she went to the second house where the woman said, Oh, Gotami, we mourn our little daughter who died last year. And at the next house, she was told, Sorry, but we mourn our mother who recently left us. And so Gotami went from house to house to house and everywhere she found suffering and grief until she paused and realized everyone, without exception, everyone in the village experienced such pain as herself. At that moment, her self-referential grief turned into a compassion for the grief experienced by all beings. She understood the transience of all things of all beings and the suffering that arose from the attachment to people who would inevitably die one day. She understood this is what the Buddha had has seen in his compassion for all of us. Now she was ready to surrender her child's body for fire, for cremation, and then she went back to the Buddha with her new insight. On her return, the Buddha smiled at her and asked her, Well, Gotami, have you brought me those mustard seeds? 
Oh, blessed one, I have had enough of the mustard seeds. Please, just let me go for refuge. Gotami thus entered the community of the nuns, where she made rapid progress on the path of liberation by virtue of her strong compassion. For her, her own intense experience of suffering became the gateway to compassion and awakening. Because of her deep realization, she soon assumed a leadership role in the Sangha and was later remembered as an exceptional practitioner. What I find remarkable ab about this story is that compassion can arise even in the most difficult circumstances, like for Gotami, who had lost her child, when she opened up to the suffering around her. Even in the midst of intense pain and anguish, hopelessness, compassion can arise in the heart and completely transform the inner world. It is the awareness of the suffering of another being that suddenly opens the doors of the prison of self-centeredness and that allows us to fully connect with this being and at the same time to connect with our own heart. In this way, compassion has an enormous power to free the mind from unwholesome mind states like anger, cruelty, clinging, resentment, and all those. And I find that so amazing, this effect. Whenever I become aware of it happening, this shift from constriction and self-centeredness and fear to connectedness and care. I'm sure you all have experienced such moments, this shift, yes? from this constriction to the connection, to compassion. Sometimes we can also intentionally incline the mind in this direction when we find it difficult with ourselves or with other beings. You know, for instance, here on retreat, it can happen that someone is getting on our nerves, that there is some irritation, that we have judgmental thoughts about someone. And that would be a great opportunity to see if you can invite compassion into your field, into your mind. Often the first place to bring compassion to is, you know what? Where to bring compassion first? Exactly, to ourselves. Rather than getting caught in aversion against the other person who is blocking the shower for hours or who is taking too much food or pushing into the line while you are standing there annoyed and disgruntled, see if you can acknowledge your mind state, acknowledge the dukkha and bring some compassion to yourself because these are very unpleasant mind states, isn't it? It's really difficult to endure them. And maybe it's possible to include both yourself and the other being in a larger field of compassion, just remembering that both of us are beings that suffer. Whenever there is such an unwholesome mind state, 
no matter what, if we can remember compassion, it will purify and heal and relax our heart-mind. So it really has the potential to free the mind from an unwholesome mind state temporarily. Because, you know, there is always suffering in another being, even beneath what might seem like aggression or selfishness. As human beings, we all share, for instance, the experience of having bodies that hurt at times. We all share experiences of conflict, of failure, of aging, of sickness, of death. This is by Miller-Williams. Have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems conceit? Bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard, no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on down there where the spirit meets the bone. So can we just remember that each and every being we meet suffers in some way? Even if we don't know in which specific way, can we just open up to them and see them as sensitive, suffering beings, just as we, and feel this kind of compassion? Another power of compassion is that it weakens the sense of separation and isolation. Compassion has the power to melt away the the walls that we so often create around us and to really bring us into touch with the softness and tenderness of our heart. Recognizing the amount of suffering and distress in other beings, like in the person sitting right next to you, for instance, even in those who seem so happy, so well-off, we realize that we are not alone in our own suffering, that we're all sitting in the same boat. Because doesn't it often feel like suffering is somehow exclusively personal? It somehow defines me, my suffering. And then we build ourselves around it. We, we tell stories around our suffering and we feel ashamed about having such a deficient self that is afflicted by suffering. We just take it way too personal. But this, it's simply not true. It's simply not true that suffering is a personal flaw. Suffering, anguish, fear, stress are universal aspects of being alive that we all share They are just the existential part of being a human being. So when I have headache, for instance, I can bring to my mind that billions of beings, not just human beings, but also probably animals, you know, have headaches. Birds, cats, cows. Have you ever thought about cows having headaches? (laughs) Or when... No, but it's true. It's true. Or, or have stomach ache, you know? We, we don't think. We just see them, oh, how nice cows. But, yeah. 
<laughs> they are also being bitten by mosquitoes. Oh. And you know, just kind of feel it, really. Or when I feel lonely, I can remember all the countless beings who also feel lonely in this moment. When I feel hungry, I can bring to mind all those beings who experience hunger every day, who have to go to bed every day with hunger. So really there is no form of suffering that is really exclusive. I'm sorry to say there is just nothing that is very exclusive, even if it feels like this way. So if we can see this and feel compassionate about this, we can start to really feel connected to other beings. We feel this interconnectedness with all beings. We really realize that we are so close to all beings, that we share this plight. And this is also, that's another point, why compassion very naturally leads to ethical behavior. Actually, we could say that moral conduct is an expression of compassion. It is clear that the deep concern for the well-being of all beings forbids any action that could harm those beings. To kill, to steal, to hurt someone obviously is not compatible with the compassionate concern for others. That's why the Buddha said that for someone with a mind well-developed in compassion, it is impossible to act in unwholesome ways, as it says in a discourse. Suppose there is a small boy or girl who since birth is able to dwell in the liberation of the mind through compassion. Later on, would he or she still perform unwholesome deeds by body, speech or mind? The monks answered, certainly not, blessed one. The final point that I'd like to mention is the power of compassion to support the development of liberating insight. As we've already seen, there is an intrinsic relationship between wisdom and compassion because compassion is embedded in a wise understanding. So in some early Buddhist discourses, it is stated that the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, like karuna, compassion, can also lead to quite a high level of awakening. For instance, it says, if the liberation of the mind by compassion has become boundless and well-developed in this way, certainly non-returning will be attained, or else that which is still higher. Now, this doesn't mean that compassion alone can lead to full awakening because it always needs to be accompanied by insight. Or maybe it's better to say compassion necessarily implies wisdom and wisdom implies compassion. So in a way you cannot really separate them from each other. If you develop one of them, you will at the same time nurture the other quality. And yet, as we've said, compassion purifies the heart and mind and liberates it from unwholesome mind states. And this transformative power of compassion can significantly support us 
in our growth and in the liberation of the mind. A second aspect is the power of compassion to loosen our view of a fixed and separate self, as we've mentioned already. You know, this distorted perception of a separate self that is really at the core of all our suffering, of our clinging, of our fear, our tension and alienation. And compassion makes us realize that we are not so different and not so separate from other beings after all. This is by Christina Feldman. One of the core and transforming insights at the heart of compassion is the profound understanding of the insubstantiality of the notions of self and other. When compassion is really strong, we might even act for the well-being of others at our own costs because their suffering touches us in the same way as our own personal suffering. In such moments, it becomes apparent that the boundaries between you and me are not as solid and fixed as they seemed and that your suffering also is my suffering. Shantideva, the famous yogi and scholar from the 8th century, expressed this understanding in beautiful verses. Although there are many different parts and aspects, such as the hands, as a body that is to be protected, they are one. Likewise, all the different sentient beings in their pleasure and their pain have a wish to be happy that is the same as mine. Therefore, just as I protect myself from unpleasant things, however small, in the same way I should act towards others with a compassionate and caring mind. In the same way as the hands and so forth are regarded as limbs of the body, likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life. Compassion can open up a way of looking in which we realize that all beings are part of the same whole, the same life, that we are all woven into the same web of causes and conditions, sharing the same basic wish to be happy, to be free from suffering. And in this way, this sense of a separated, isolated self softens and we become more intuitively aware of a fundamental interdependence. Compassion is sometimes compared to warm sunlight that simply melts away the, the frozen aspects in our being all the knots of clinging and craving and identification that keep us stuck. And also, it also works the other way around. If our insight into not-self, into anatta, deepens, this will naturally increase compassion. So, we have seen now many ways in which compassion supports the transformation of the mind and the deepening of insight, of understanding. 
And yet, so often we might notice that we are, in spite of all our good intentions, unable to feel compassion. There are many factors that can get in the way of compassion, that can limit it. So basically any unwholesome mind state can get in the way of compassion, be it anger, fear, craving, envy, whatever. As we've already mentioned, our habitual reaction to unpleasantness is just to want to get away from it or denying it or getting angry. And, you know, I can see it really when I'm reading the news. I can feel the resistance to read about the enormous hardship of refugees, for instance, to read about all those hundreds of people, you know, Men, women, children, whole families drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. So I, I notice it in my own mind that I prefer not to read all those articles. There is like this, oh, I don't want to get close to it. But, you know, it's just because we live so far away. We think we can afford not to really look. Yeah. So... It's just out of this defensiveness that we cover our natural sensitivity and this blinds us to the suffering because we are so caught in this self-centered attitude. This totally inflated sense, uh, sense of what I need, what I want, what I hate, it just simply overrides the needs and wants of other beings around me and then we don't care about them, both on an individual level and on a collective level. Sometimes it's also simply our absent-mindedness or our tunnel vision that stands in the way when we are so absorbed in our own personal drama that we fail to notice that the person next to us looks desperate or down. How would it be if we simply would ask, how are you doing? You know, just... This simple gesture. Maybe it's just time pressure or stress. Maybe it's a habit we have developed not to look up, not to really notice what is happening. Sometimes it has to do with in and out groups, with feeling different from another person that prevents us from really resonating with them. Most people tend to have more compassion for those who feel close to them and for the members of the same family or clan or for those who are somehow similar to us in terms of gender or ethnicity or nationality than for others. This tendency to include some beings into our compassion and to exclude others, to limit our compassion to a selected group of beings that can even be justified by certain worldviews or ideologies. Such ideologies or philosophies that emphasize more the differences than the common factors among humans, they can really blind us to the shared humanity. And this can really lead to extremely cruel acts against other people, against groups, when we dehumanize whole groups and deny them of their basic human dignity, like in the Holocaust or in genocides. 
sometimes also, and that's a difficult one, we find it difficult to feel compassion for someone who has acted in unskillful ways, maybe hurting us or hurting another being. It might seem to us that to have compassion for someone like that will mean that we condone their actions and behavior. So, first of all, it doesn't mean that. As we've seen, compassion is not stupid. It goes along with a discerning wisdom that clearly recognizes unskillfulness or cruelty. But compassion is able to separate the person from their deeds and can feel compassion for a person while still clearly disapproving of their actions. Do you know what I mean? Secondly, and here again wisdom comes in, when we start to notice or understand that all unskillful behavior is the result of many causes and conditions, then we see the acts of a person in a less personal way. We understand that they are driven by strong patterns of ignorance. All unskillful behavior in this world really arises from confused minds, from deluded minds that are not able to see clearly what they are doing and what the harmful effects of their actions are. And this should make us feel compassionate rather than angry because we know that they are creating so much new suffering, not only for others but also for themselves. This also means that we might feel very compassionate even for a very confused person and yet at the same time we may need to stop them in their actions also for their own benefit. As the Dalai Lama says, you must not hate those who do wrong or harmful things but with compassion you must do what you can to stop them for they are harming themselves as well as those who suffer from their actions. So we have seen that many factors can get in the way of compassion and this really shows that compassion is not just always around naturally but that we need to practice it, we need to cultivate it and we can cultivate it. We can practice compassion to the point where it becomes such a strong and consistent motivation underlying all our actions and choices rather than just a quality that arises once in a time when certain conditions come together. So the more we practice compassion, the better we get at it, the more naturally it will flow and manifest in all our actions. We can choose to practice compassion both on our cushions but also in our life, in the way we live our life, how we respond to all the suffering that we encounter in our families, at our work, in society, in the world. Our everyday life is a wonderful practice ground for compassion. But you know how we individually manifest compassion in the world is really a matter of ongoing and personal exploration and creativity. And the cultivation of compassion always begins right here and now. 
in the willingness to open our heart to whatever is difficult and painful in this moment and learning to embrace it, to embrace and to hold ourselves in a gentle way, allowing our heart to be broken even and finding that through opening to this we are being opened to the world. Knowing and feeling my own pain deeply, I also recognize the pain in you and in you and in every being I meet. And this enables me, us, to step out of the vicious circles of hatred and to work for the ending of pain, for peace. I would like to conclude with a few lines by Maha Gosananda, a very famous teacher from Cambodia in the last century, also known as the Cambodian Gandhi, who after the Khmer Rouge reign of terror in the 1970s, worked hard for the reconciliation and healing of his country. Although he himself had lost his entire family, including 16 siblings in the civil war, he was at the forefront of efforts to reconcile the opposing factions in Cambodia. So after the Khmer Rouge had been defeated, he went to many refugee camps and recited there, together with his monks and nuns, the well-known verses from the Dhammapada, that hatred can not be overcome by hatred, but only by love. And many of those people, those refugees, exhausted and desperate after years of tyranny, cried at these recitations. Mahagosananda also launched many humanitarian programs and he was a formative figure in the establishment of engaged Buddhism. So he wrote those lines. The suffering of Cambodia has been deep. From this suffering comes great compassion. Great compassion makes a peaceful heart. A peaceful heart makes a peaceful person. A peaceful person makes a peaceful family. A peaceful family makes a peaceful community. A peaceful community makes a peaceful nation. A peaceful nation makes a peaceful world. May all beings live in happiness and peace. Let's just sit for a moment. <clears throat> 